If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. He was afraid that if Britain joined the common market, then, in effect, they would be a Trojan horse for the Americans. That was Peter Mangold discussing Charles de Gaulle's opposition to Britain joining the European Economic Community. Archaeological study of the last 20 years has discovered that um, the places where medieval religious houses were put in the 7th, 8th, 11th, 12th century coincide with places where votive metalwork was being put into the river with them from the Bronze Age. And that was Richard Morris on his new book, Time's Anvil. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast with me, Rob Attar. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire and Google Play. And at the moment, our Google Play and Kindle Fire editions are only available in the UK, but we hope to roll them out to other countries soon. Look out for details of all of this on our website, historyextra.com. Last week, Prime Minister David Cameron offered the British people a referendum on EU membership, should he still be in power after the next general election. But 50 years ago this month, the talk was all about Britain joining rather than leaving Europe. Prime Minister Harold Macmillan had applied to become part of what was then the European Economic Community, only to be rebuffed by French President Charles de Gaulle. To get the lowdown on this fascinating moment of European disharmony, I spoke to Peter Mangold, a historian and expert on Anglo-French relations. What kind of an organisation was the EEC in 1963 when Britain attempted to join? It was quite a small organisation, six member states, France, Germany, Italy, and then the three Benelux states, Luxembourg, Belgium and Holland. It was still to some extent getting onto its feet. Um, it had been established with a kind of deal between France, whose primary interest was the support of its very large agricultural sector, and Germany, whose interest was in industrial policy. And the f agricultural issue is of considerable importance because Britain didn't really fit in to the common agricultural policy as it was developed and specifically developed to support the French. Why did Britain not attempt to join when it first began? For several reasons. Essentially, it's long-term attitude of Britain towards the continent of Europe, um, we don't want to get too closely involved. There was a fundamental miscalculation. It was assumed, particularly when the coal and steel community was set up in 1950, 
19, the negotiations began in 1950. And then again, when the first EEC negotiations began in 1955, it was assumed that this wouldn't get off the ground, and therefore Britain could quite happily ignore it. Um, but essentially, Britain didn't join because Britain was an island, because it was a great power, because its interests were all overseas in the empire, which still existed in, in largely existed in 1957. What had changed then by 1963 that made Britain want to request to join? It was becoming clear that not only was the EEC there to stay, but as, as well as being a common market in, industri- in, in, in economic terms, it also looked as though it was likely to become a political unit which might rival Britain's position with Washington. Um, de Gaulle was the one who was championing the idea of political cooperation. And the British government got concerned that it was going to lose out. Charles de Gaulle famously said no to Britain's request to to join, and I'm sure there were a myriad of reasons, but fundamentally, why did he take that decision? Fundamentally for two reasons. In the first place, de Gaulle saw the common market and the political organisations which might be developed for it as a power base, and he didn't want Britain as a rival. Britain was an obvious rival, the only possible rival was West Germany. But the West Germany of the early 60s was a very tentative power. Um, it was still very much under the shadow of the war and had no intention of throwing its weight around. Britain might do so. Macmillan specifically talked about leadership of Europe. He, he didn't, never said what he wanted to do with it, but he was interested in leadership. The other reason is that de Gaulle had an obsession both with independence and with anti-Americanism. And I think both of those go back to the Second World War. France had collapsed in 1940. Roosevelt had quickly come to the conclusion that France was finished as a great power. This was anathema to de Gaulle. De Gaulle was determined that France would revive as a great power. But there was also the fact that Roosevelt took very strongly against de Gaulle personally. And he had a very rough time with the Americans, supported by Churchill. And I think he came out of the war highly suspicious of America, both because of what they'd, if you like, done to him during the war, and also because he was a a student of realpolitik and was under no illusion of the fact that great powers threw their weight around. And he was afraid that if Britain joined the common market then, in effect, they would be a Trojan horse for the Americans. So he wanted to avoid too much American influence over the European group. Yes. Oh, don't forget also that um, de Gaulle had withdrawn NATO, withdrawn France from the um, integrated NATO command, I think very shortly after he came to power in 1958. And the French only um, returned to that integrated command relatively recently under President Sarkozy. Was de Gaulle right that America were attempting to extend their influence through British membership of the EEC? I think he exaggerated it. Uh, The Americans certainly strongly supported the British membership bid, and they looked to Britain as, I suppose, a voice um, in Europe, as somebody who would, uh, a partner who would be likely to sympathise with their views. But his attitude to the Americans, I think, was obsessive. 
overly suspicious. De Gaulle and Macmillan had known each other during the Second World War. Was there any level of personal animosity that might have influenced de Gaulle here? No. Um, on the contrary, um, they got to know each other in Algeria in 1943 after the uh, Allied landings in North Africa. Macmillan was, was sent to uh, Algeria basically to, to gain influence over the Americans. De Gaulle set up his base in Algeria after leaving London. I mean, Algeria was French soil. And they'd formed a kind of friendship. It was very much a political friendship. Um, and Macmillan rather hoped to capitalize on that friendship. Uh, he misjudged de Gaulle in this. De Gaulle was not a man who allowed sentiment to get in the way of politics and certainly wasn't going to give way on French interests in recognition of some kind of debt, either to Macmillan personally or to Britain for its role in the war. Macmillan went into the uh, negotiations without a strategy for countering de Gaulle's opposition. His one potential card was the fact the French nuclear deterrent was at a very early stage and they needed technical help. Macmillan explored the idea of providing this as a quid pro quo for EEC membership, but he had a problem. He couldn't share any of British nuclear technology which had come from the Americans. This was part of the agreement which the British and the Americans had made, I think it was in 57, on nuclear sharing. And when you started actually looking at what might be available in terms of purely British nuclear technology, which had no American component, there was actually very little. So although Macmillan would have liked to have made a deal, he couldn't actually do it. And that one quid pro quo, which might have tempted to go, just wasn't available. He went in empty-handed in the end. He went in empty-handed at the end. And he... So he made the mistake. He, he knew that de Gaulle was, was a ruthless ally. Um, the Foreign Office referred to him as the almost impossible ally. Um, he allowed himself to hope, partly because of the relations he'd established in, with de Gaulle in the war, that de Gaulle wouldn't be ruthless towards him. And, of course, he was. France was then only one member of the EEC, did the other member states back de Gaulle's decision? They were basically bullied into it. Um, Conrad Adenauer, the West German Chancellor, was unsympathetic towards Britain. He was particularly unsympathetic towards Macmillan because at the time the Russians had been putting a lot of pressure on Berlin and the British had not been very helpful. And Macmillan was also, he'd served in the First World War, he'd been very badly wounded. And he was essentially anti-German. And this meant that Konrad Adenauer, who was the key figure among the other five, was not likely to make a fuss when de Gaulle raised his veto. The other four were strongly opposed. They hadn't been consulted, they hadn't been informed in advance. But there wasn't much they could do. Because France was then the leading power in the EEC? It was the leading power in the, in the EEC. And not only the leading power, it was the most skillful power in, in operating the system. What impact did this refusal have on Britain and on Harold Macmillan? It was a very considerable personal blow to Harold Macmillan. 
the veto is in January 1963. He resigns in October of that year. Some commentators say that he was never quite the same man again after that veto. One shouldn't exaggerate this too much because he'd been in power for six years. It's very clear from the time that Britain began negotiating with the six members of the common market in 1961 that Macmillan was getting tired. Um, the Conservative Party was also doing badly in by-elections. So you could say that time was against Macmillan and this was simply made the inevitable more likely. As far as Britain was concerned, it was a public humiliation. It was a time at which British power was ebbing rapidly. Dean Acheson, a couple of months before the veto, had made his famous remark, which is still quoted, that Britain had lost an empire and failed to find a role. And the 1960s were a particularly bad period for British foreign policy. It was really in something of a limbo. And I think for 10 years, the consequences of not being in Europe were very unfortunate because it was clear that Britain had to join, but at the same time it couldn't. When and how did Britain finally gain admission? There was a second veto. Um, Harold Wilson tried to um, make an application and to go veto that, um, though not as dramatically. And then when Ted Heath came to power in 1971, Heath was the most pro-European of all British prime ministers since the war or, or subsequently. And he established an understanding with de Gaulle's successor, Georges Pompidou. And once that understanding was made, it became possible to finish off all the complicated technical negotiations in Brussels. So Britain joined in 1973, almost exactly 10 years after the first veto. And during this period, was the public generally behind Britain's European entry? One of the criticisms which, which was made about Harold Macmillan was that he was very slow to come out and make a public call in support of the EEC membership. I think I, I'm going from memory here. The opinion polls are not particularly supportive and as the negotiations go on, they become a bit less supportive. And de Gaulle is well aware of that. It wasn't a major issue. It certainly wasn't a negotiation in which the prime minister knew the whole of the country was behind him. We're talking about this around the time of the 50th anniversary. But it, the European Union and Britain's membership of it is still a subject that excites a great deal of debate. Do you think that policymakers of today could learn something from what happened in 1963? I think there are probably two lessons, though they're indirect. Um, one of them is the importance of France still. I mean, de Gaulle was right in one sense in trying to keep Britain out. He was afraid and knew that once Britain joined, it would be the beginning of a process of enlargement in which other countries would um, join and French power would be diluted. And that's happened. Having said that, in any renegotiation of Britain's terms... France is going to be crucial, and it certainly would be much preferable to have the French on board than have them not on board. And one gets the impression that um, the French are perhaps one of the least sympathetic to any renegotiation. I think that the other point is the need to make the case for Europe. If Macmillan had made the case for Europe 
strongly at the beginning of the negotiations rather than late, waiting until sometime in 19, late in 1962, it might have been easier to finish the negotiations earlier or to, to reach an earlier conclusion. And if that had been done, the goal might have been preempted. So I think a message is, if you're going to be a member of this club, then make sure that everybody understands why it's necessary to be a member and make that case firmly and loudly in public. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. That was Peter Mangold. Peter is the author of The Almost Impossible Ally, Harold Macmillan and Charles de Gaulle, as well as Britain and the Defeated French, From Occupation to Liberation, 1940 to 1944. Both of those books are published by IB Taurus. Before our next interview, I'd like to briefly mention an exciting new app that we've launched for the iPad. The Second World War Story is an interactive guide to the greatest conflict in human history. It's packed with expert analysis, stunning images and video footage. You can find the Second World War Story at the App Store now. Richard Morris is an archaeologist and former director of the Council for British Archaeology. His latest book, Times Anvil, England, Archaeology and the Imagination, is an archaeological book, but one with a difference as it also covers family history poetry, physics and other subjects not normally dwelt on by archaeologists. BBC History magazine's publisher Dave Musgrove met up with him in a pub in York and his first question was to ask Richard what the point of his new book is. Well, it started out as a book that was about the, how um, new technology um, is influencing what archaeology finds and how new technology can help to... Um, uh, tell new stories and there's a particular technology that keeps recurring in the book it's called metal detecting mm. now when I was with the Council for British Archaeology in the 1980s archaeology and the metal detecting hobby were at loggerheads um, the, the, the reasons 
we may have almost forgotten, but they were to do with the fact that archaeological material being found by metal detectorists was, was being dissipated. It wasn't forming any coherent narrative. And there are still archaeologists today. I know plenty of colleagues who, who are still pretty um, hostile to the hobby. But we can't escape the fact that, that metal detectorists have been able to do things that archaeology hitherto had not done. And I'll give you one example. It's in the book, which is that the very, very small um, silver pennies that are being minted in southern Britain from about the late 7th century through into the um, 9th century are so small, they're about the size of your fingernail, um, um, or, or they're beautifully made. I mean, you actually look at them close up, they're in, most intricately worked things you'll, you'll ever see. They're extraordinary and full of variation, hundreds of different kinds. But we only ever found them because they're so small, and when you find them uh, on excavations, they look like mud anyway because they, they, they don't gleam like silver. They're just, just sort of little bits of earth. Uh, and uh, they therefore gave the appearance of being rather rare. And the only time you ever really found them was when you found a hoard in a pot or some other container. And, and in those cases, uh, you'd, uh, you, you'd find what Mark Blackburn, the late great numismatist from Cambridge, described as a flash of lightning. You know, a coin hoard suddenly sheds light on a moment in archaeology, but, but, but not much else. What the detectorists have been finding is individual losses, which give a much better picture of economic activity in the 7th, 8th and 9th century. The coins that fall through your trouser pockets or the, the coin that dropped out of your purse while you were making a transaction. And they're finding them by the thousand. So whereas previously uh, we, we thought they were rare and that the market economy had almost come to a standstill in the, the, the early Middle Ages, there seems to be more silver circulating in southern Britain in the early 8th century than at any time until the later Middle Ages. This transforms our perception of trade, of economic activity, of, uh, of markets. Um, and the reason we're getting that picture is that individual finds are now being recorded centrally and we can get a, an overall picture of, of, of what they are. And they are, they are monumentally large. Um, so the book set out to, to, um, to, 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 to examine the effects of these new technologies um, on archaeology. There's another chapter in the book which looks at um, magnetometry, of being able to um, see through the soil and, and look at discontinuities underground by um, magnetometers. But as I got started, um, the things were happening in my own life. Um, my father died um, just as the book was starting. And we went through his house, and, as you do, and uh, uh, my mother had died several years before, and so there were all the things that uh, bring you up short. Um, the box of letters that they'd written to each other during the war, um, the photographs that, that, that from the, their respective families. Uh, my grandfather's um, discharge certificate from the army in 1918 at the end of the Great War. Um, little things like that. And uh, I couldn't really find a way to start this book, just as start a book about archaeology is, is, is always hard and there's a lot of, it's like sort of trying to start a motor car, you know, when the, the stars motor keeps turning over but you can't get it going. And so I thought, well, I'll start with this. Here, here, here are four individuals, you know, my grandparents. Um, I'll start with them. And the book began, therefore, um, when I finally got going, as a, in, an interaction between the individual and the personal experience and the big flow. Uh, archaeology is the story of, 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 of a great meta-narrative for part of the world over thousands of years and, and real individuals who you can locate within that flow. And 
that led me to think about other real individuals going backwards in, in history, um, the, the, the medieval peasants. We don't know their name, but you, know, you can see where they lived and what they did. Um, or the, our very first ancestors at the time when Britain perhaps just had just a few hundred hominins in it. Um, we're talking now tens, hundreds of thousands of years ago. Um, and I thought, well, nobody's ever really done a book that, 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 that sort of began with the beginning of, of people in this country and um, came up to the present, which is where, of course, my grandparents were. So it, 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 it evolved like that. So it wasn't a book I set out or planned. It's a book that took shape as a result of things that were going on around me. Mm. You do lots of things in, the, in this book. Um, you sort of run through the history of archaeology to start with uh, in, a, in an interesting fashion, introducing us to lots of the, the big names in the story of archaeology. You give us these sort of personal anecdotes um, from your own life and from your, from, your, well, from your archaeological career and from your, from your recent family story. Um, but you're also telling us the story of, of archaeology in England going back, as you said, um, millennia. Um, but what you also do is to ask us whether we are looking at it in the right way. Basically, you're saying that we uh, are guilty of over-categorising and by looking at history through our, the way that we compartmentalise by saying, you know, things happened in the Iron Age or the Bronze yeah. Age, that's... <laughs> we miss something big. Mm. So perhaps you could just elucidate on, on what you're trying to say there. Well, categorization and, and periodization are um, uh, necessary things in order to give order to all the material we look at. I mean, the, the archaeological record is absolutely enormous. It is millions upon millions of items of data. So you've got to have some shape to that. But if you think about it like graph paper or um, the coordinates we put on maps or latitude and longitude, these are things that are, are of our own devising, which we use at the scale we want to make measurements or draw graphs or, or plot maps. But they are essentially um, abstract, they're artificial, they don't exist in, 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 in real terms, they don't, only insofar as, as we make them. And historical periods are rather like that, and as I've said somewhere else, um, most historical periods are defined in contrast to another one. There are the Saxons and the Normans, or the Romans and the Britons. Now, those are our constructs. Um, we've decided who these groupings are and what they represent. And uh, if we stand back from those and look at um, the continuities, they may be just as important. And as you say, at the end of the book, um, uh, um, potential continuities are found across periods that we have normally considered to be quite separate. There's a very good case um, that is mentioned in the book um, and is, is well published already uh, from the Witham Valley in Lincolnshire where um, um, uh, archaeological study over the last 20 years has discovered that um, the places where medieval religious houses were put in the 7th, 8th, 11th, 12th century coincide with places where votive metalwork was being put into the river Witham from the Bronze Age. Now, what's going on there? Um, uh, are they trying to cancel those places? Um, are they trying to kind of um, stand guard over them and cancel out the, these, these earlier practices? No, because when you look at the, the metalwork deposits, we find that they're still putting votive metalwork into the rivers up until the 15th century. Um, it's really only the, the sort of Reformation that sort of brings this to, to an apparent end. And, and, and one might look at this in another way, and this is not my idea, 
um, suggestion by Paul Everson and David Stocker that in fact the religious houses are taking, assuming the role of sort of guardians, if you like, of, of a sense of place, of, of, a, of a perceived sub-regional identity um, and they are sort of taking on the responsibility if you like of sort of, of, of maintaining that, 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 that guardianship the next guardians who seem to be doing this are, and I, the, book, the book suggests are actually poets um, they, they take on the, the responsibilities for celebrating place and, uh, and giving us a sense of, sense of place um, uh, uh, so I'm not arguing against the idea of periodization. I'm simply saying that if that's all we do, we miss things, and that some of the things may be very big and perhaps even bigger than the periods themselves. That takes us um, into the into the Reformation, I, I guess, because that's one of the, the main points of. Is that a break? You know, it, it seems to be a big break for you, and well, it's a big break for lots of people. But, yeah. um, before that, are you saying that there was a sort of a more of a harmony in terms of religion and society, and uh, and Christianity was more open to influences from outside? You talk a lot about um, pagan influences coming through. Mm. Though you haven't mm. just said that, that you don't see that as much, but you know that there were things that were going on that had pagan antecedents. Um, but then after the Reformation, it kind of all stops, doesn't it? Or at least uh, you know the Puritans and the Civil War. Uh, exacerbate that process but is, 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 is the Reformation the, kind of the big, the big moment when we start to move away from understanding the past in, in the fashion that perhaps you think we ought to? Yeah I used to think it was and to some extent I still think that um, it, is, it is a huge wrench all kinds of things that are <clears throat> of great of long standing significance are checked or brought to a halt by the Reformation. Um, there is discussion in the book about the struggle that goes on for about another hundred years of expressing those things in new ways or, or doggedly defending them. Um, uh, and perhaps it is the Civil War that, that is, the, is, is the line that's drawn. But by the time the book was, I was really on the last pages for the last time, um, the, the, I was beginning to think that it was probably the Later 19th century, intensified industrialization coupled with international migration, coupled with rapidity of communication that really, really did for it. I mean, I give the example of, of customs that were going on in my grandmother's house in Fulham, where at every full moon they would cover, the, the women in the house would cover the things made of glass with cloth so that the moon wouldn't shine through it. Well, you know, there's an ancient custom, if ever there was one. And it's still going on in Fulham in the 1880s. Um, I don't think it'll be going on there now. And so something, really big changes have happened in the last 100 years, I think, which, which have brought this to an end. Uh, so to answer your question, I, I, while, I, while, I, while the Reformation is hugely significant and has big, big consequences, the... the the, the, the final line is being drawn probably in the last 150 years. And in some respects, therefore, the, the, the um, outlooks and sense of neighbourhood, actually, um, is probably more in common with sort of Bronze Age England and the 18th century than there is between the 18th century and now. Just sort of in conclusion, where, where does this, this approach take us uh, in our understanding of archaeology? How, how have you moved us on in terms of, of our debate about archaeology and our understanding of England today? I think uh, one of the things is that we need to take history seriously. There is an idea, and this is tackled quite 
um, early on in the book that um, the further away something is, uh, the less important it becomes historically. Um, and by that token, um, you get what we have with the national history curriculum, which is that it starts around about you know, AD zero and the Romans, um, and um, and it gets more co- detailed as, as, as time goes by. Um, it's quite interesting that that, that, that while we can't, um, obviously you can't teach prehistory as a national curriculum subject because there's so much else to do in, um, in the world of Michael Gove that you can't take it all in. Nevertheless, even awareness of it is, 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 uh, is not really um, brought into our educational system. And we tend to um, treat history lightly, so that when I was at the Council of British Archaeology, we get letters about dinosaurs and the Flintstones and things like this. And people's ideas about our, our history are very hazy beyond a certain point. And I think we need to um, take it seriously. Uh, we're, we're never going to find out everything we want to know about it because the sources are imperfect, but we need to use them to their, to their full stretch. And we need to understand ourselves as a species, which is something else that this book is about, um, better. And we do that by studying ourselves and where we've come from. That was Richard Morris. Times Anvil, England, Archaeology and the Imagination is published now by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. You can read a review of the book in our February issue, which has recently been published in both print and digital. Also in the edition, we've got articles on the 20 most important battles in British history, Hitler's philosopher allies, medieval royal finances, and Britain's relationship with Islam, as well as much more. And that's about all for this week's episode. Why not tell us what you thought by getting in touch on email, podcast at historyextra.com, Twitter at History Extra, or Facebook forward slash History Extra. Next time we'll be talking about Georgian bankers and a reconstructed Bronze Age boat. Do join us for that. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.